Hello and welcome to our next episode of the DevOps Speak Easy podcast. My name is Baruch Sadogurski. I'm head of DevOps Advocacy with JFrog, and I have two amazing guests with me today. Melissa McKay, Developer Advocate at JFrog. Hi, Melissa. Hi. And the one, the only, Kelsey Hightower. I got to get you to do it. Wow, I got to get you to do all my intros. Yes, right? Okay, just hire me to do your intros. We can do that. Kelsey, thank you for being on the show. It's amazing to have you, and we are very, very thrilled. And... The reason why we are here is that um, Melissa and Kelsey did a wonderful webinar about um, CICD pipelines. Uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we left some time for questions. I think we left like 15 minutes, and it's usually enough um, on the webinar format for Q&A, but not when you have Kelsey Hightower on the show. Uh, we got so many amazing questions that we decided we are going to dedicate um, a whole separate episode of the DevOps Speakeasy to try and answer some of them. It will be a long episode, but there are so many great questions. Uh, I think with that, we can dive right in and start talking about CICD. Um, so uh, when we're talking about CI/CD, the CD part is um, usually uh, raises a lot of eyebrows because what the D in CI/CD stands for? Is it continuous delivery? Is it continuous deployment already? Because we kind of switched. Are they just two names for the same thing, or is there a difference? Which one is better? Which one should we do? Lots of questions. Melissa, Kelsey, what do you say about that? I guess I'll start. I think no matter how you define it, there's one base requirement. And that base requirement is that you have to have uh, automation in place. All right. So the ability to automate whatever you're trying to do. So, for example, if you're trying to continuously update a web API, maybe it lives in a container. Um, and to do that continuously, maybe you're watching a code check-in something gets checked in, you build a Docker file, you got a container image, and you push it out to Kubernetes. And if you have that all automated, then you get to make a decision. You can have that be a button click away, right? Someone can come in and click a button and take the latest version of that container, or maybe they can type in the specific container that just got built, or maybe the one previous to that. And now when you start to talk about either one of those definitions, it could be where it's just automated, no human in the middle. You just trust that all your tests are good, you have good integration testing, and you just allow that change to flow directly to production. And that requires a lot of confidence. So whether you do maybe the extreme version of every check-in just finds its way to production, or you have that one button click that requires a human to intervene, I think the foundation is roughly the same. We're talking about automation enabling you to do either the continuous like delivery or continuous deployment or however you define it. Yeah, I think Kelsey is 100% correct. Um, you just have to do what works for you. As far as deployment versus delivery, it's going to depend on what your software is doing in the end anyway. If if you just need to deliver an artifact, per se, that people you know end up downloading and run themselves, that would be an example of continuous delivery. Um, another example of continuous deployment would be um, even just uh, deploying automatically to like a, an intermediate 
um, environment prior to protection, like QA or some test environment, something like that. So yeah, what works for your process is important. Yeah, no, my my job on this podcast is being the devil advocate, so I'm going to ruin your kumbaya and try to ask some uncomfortable questions. Here is my problem with continuous delivery, with this last manual check and and, uh, the the last button. Now, let's say we have a pretty good pipeline with a lot of solid quality checks. We um, uh, We did unit tests, we did maybe... Um, integration tests, we did performance, we did security, we did license audit, we did a lot of good checks. And then it comes to this last button. First of all, who is going to push it? Will it be a developer? Will it be someone senior who needs to sign off the release? Whatever, whoever person that is, why, what is the purpose of them being there? What is this last check that the human can do that will be more qualified than all the machine checks that happened before? I can think of one example, um, time. I mean, some updates you need to do at a a period of time when your load is low, perhaps, or um, if you need to go down. I know this is a horrible thing to say, but this is real life, right? Sometimes your application needs to go down in order to take this update and you need to time that appropriately and have the right people available to deal with any issues. So all this algorithm is great, but I would argue again that machine can do it much better than person. Machine knows much better when those low load times are. You have no idea how many users you have online now. Machines do. It's the same with resources available. All you need to do is calendar availability. And again, machine can check if people are available much faster and much more reliable than human. Uh, So I think the counter there is what we see with like machine learning, right? Humans today drive cars better than a machine can. Uh, Maybe under certain unique conditions, a computer can repeatedly do the same thing over and over again. But when a computer is usually confronted with something that's never seen, that's it. Someone has to intervene and program that logic. And the thing is, there's probably a trillion decisions that can be made in the course of a deployment that if you haven't pre-calculated a lot of those, then the machine is just going to be kind of useless, right? So for example, uh, you're a retailer and you're having some major sales event. Turns out that your inventory system is now failed, right? Anyone that buys anything, you found the first time ever in the history of this 100-year-old company that people can still buy things, but when you're out of inventory, they ship it for free. Like, wow, this is a logic bug that you've never seen before. Your CICD pipeline cannot help you. Nothing, the machines haven't been programmed with that particular scenario. So they're not thinking on the fly like a human being can. So a lot of times, until you have enough experience and confidence, a lot of times companies will still have that last check to say, hey, until we can actually plug into that inventory system, maybe it's in a situation where it's not able to be automatically fed into the machine, maybe it's still being managed by some spreadsheet. Look, that's the reality of a lot of these systems. They're not all uh, in a perfect state where we can get data out of them easily. And that's where some of these manual checks comes in, where someone may say, hey, can we double check the inventory to make sure that the thing that happened last time doesn't happen again? And that's just like a reasonable thing to do whenever you kind of have that scenario. So it's not saying that's the only way to do it. 
it's the reason why people do it. Okay. Well, so what, what I hear is there are some parts which are at the moment we didn't automate either for good reasons. It's impossible to automate, although I'm still waiting for a good example there or more common, but less good reason. We didn't get to it. We didn't have the resources. We didn't have the time. And in that case, the real answer is we will probably want to get rid of these human checks. It's just we are still not there yet. Yeah, you can't predict all failure scenarios. There is no perfect system in the world. It's all trade-offs based on your time. So if you could actually predict every time a network is going to get slow, when a new kernel update is going to impact some library that you imported because of MTU size on network packets being shuffled around, there is no one I know that writes code in a way that accounts for MTU errors. This is, you're not going to do it. And when yeah, that no, but my question is how a human in the end of the pipeline will, will, can, can help with that. Oh, the site is just down, right? Like we're about to deploy and we're about to deploy a change into an environment that actually isn't working. For example, uh, your CICD pipeline has credentials to deploy to your Kubernetes cluster, right? Easy to automate. Hey, pipeline, here are the credentials to the Kubernetes cluster. Guess what? Turns out that the API server is down. What are you going to do about it? Well, then the deployment will just fail. How human will help with that? So exactly. So in some cases, you may have to actually have someone verify that it can be. We have some companies that are air-gapped, meaning they only open up that API server when it's necessary to deploy because the risk is too high to leave it open all the time, right? This is a completely automatable step. You just open it before when you started deploying, before you started with deployment, and you close it when it's done. Guess Again, they, no human intervention. Open, guess how they open the API server? They walk into a physical room and use the physical keyboard that's in that physical room and enable it for just that one moment. And then but this, this, falls, this falls into category, we really should have automated it, but just didn't do it. What I look, and there are tons, tons of good reasons for, for that to happen. Some companies release from a developer machine because they didn't get to even start on pipeline. What I'm looking for, and, and I, really, I, I really hope to find it because I need this example in, 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 my, uh, in my life, in my reality, one example of where, when there is a decision which is uniquely human that we cannot possibly automate, and this is why the big green button in the end of our pipeline that distinguishes between continuous delivery and continuous deployment is actually justified. I'll give you a real world example. I used to work in finance. Before we make a change, we go to the gas station for one of the systems, and you have to use an actual card from one of our customers. You have to actually buy real gas at a gas pump and see the transaction flow from gas pump to the decision being made so we know that the current state of the world is working 100%. We roll the next version of the app and they put that credit card in again and they buy some gas at another gas station. We coordinate it by cell phone. The customer contract was like, I can never have any more of this. You've updated the software and none of my bank card holders can buy gas. How do you automate that? 
Well, I would say that this is psychology, not machines. This is the fact that you can show your customer that you can buy gas at the gas station is nothing but a show off. Because in the end of the day, if your checks are good, you can guarantee to yourself and the customers might not believe you, but this is something else. But you know that your system that your system is working. Yeah. Now, if you need this act of showing that it actually happens, this is out of the realm of automation and into the realm of psychology. And what it sounds to me is that this company failed multiple times in uh, in in what they're supposed to do during their updates, and there is a problem of trust. Listen, you want the airplane that you're flying on to actually have real test flights. You want an actual pilot to sit in that seat, not some simulator, not some you know modified version of Microsoft Flight Simulation tool. You want a human being and probably the flight attendants and properly weighted subjects. But you probably want a human pilot to sit behind that seat and sign off on the release of that airliner, period. I am not going to trust something someone said, hey, our software tested the other software, green light. That is crazy because guess who we're building this stuff for? We're building it for humans, not machines. So when it's critical that people can actually pay for like life-saving things, sometimes it's worth the extra human cost because it's for human beings for it to be tested, right? We're not just talking about web APIs here. A lot of the software we build goes into medical equipment. I had LASIK surgery, so there was a laser that was cutting my cornea open. I'm not playing around with some unit test or some integration test for someone to say, Kelsey, we've never tried this on a real human before or this updated version of the machine before, but I think our unit tests are great. I'm not trying to find out. Not that way. So there's some things in life, because we're building these machines for humans, that you want that human check. Like, I think that is important. This is great. This is actually awesome because it touches on exactly my point. Now, we both understand with our rational uh, analytic minds that the checks that the pilot will perform on this test flight is is a tiny friction of the test that the machines can and actually run. But as humans, we are um, we just need that to happen. So I, I I think we here we kind of came to the to to the real to the real answer. It's not that humans check better. It's just that. It's important for other people to know that it was checked by human as well, although the checks that human perform are much less rigorous and much less covering and much less smart than what machines can possibly do. Who's writing the who's writing these tests, by the way? Exactly. Human beings are writing the tests. I think we landed on the same thought there, Kelsey. Um, yeah, because the whole testing, the automated testing itself is done by humans and humans are, you know, very good at making mistakes or missing things. I think um, this is an awesome conversation just to listen to you go back and forth because I, I see both sides of this and I see a lot of this changing in, in years in the future. Because as Baruch says, um, definitely there is a level of fear. There's a level of, you know, distrust. And there's good reason for that because so far, 
human beings who write the code and who write the tests have not been perfect and there have been mistakes. So when you're dealing with things like money, people's money and people's lives, we have to be extra careful. Um, in the future, who knows if this mentality is going to change. Um, obviously, there are certain applications where you can go from beginning to end where you don't have to worry so much. Um, a deployment doesn't, even if there was a mistake, the consequences aren't so high. So I think those are good places to start and uh, learn from those. And every time there is a mistake, understand why that is and, and how to prevent it in the future. But yeah, I think right now, realistically, there are just some things that um, human beings feel better knowing a human being has actually tried it. Well, yeah, that makes sense. And I think we, we summarized it well enough. And that brings me to another question of if we trust our pipelines, who uh, builds the pipelines? You mentioned that all the checks are invented by humans. And I think it's an iterative, iterative progress and a process. And what's good about it is that once we came up with this brilliant test that the machine couldn't came, come up with, we actually codify it in one of the quality gates. And since then, it will run persistently, repeatedly, uh, and reliably by the machines. But who who is building, who is what is the pipeline of the pipelines? Uh, if we are talking about the pipeline as set of machines that run some code or robots that run some code, who is building those machines? Who is assembling the pipeline? And can we make sure that it's repeatable? It doesn't have bugs. Do that we won't forget or, or, or add a bug that will skip some tests. And in the end of the day, our growing reliance on the pipeline is actually also relying on the quality of the pipeline. How can we ensure the quality of the pipeline? So, yeah, I think, I think it, it probably helps if we just like, like people keep saying pipelines and it just creates this imaginary, like illusion of there's this continuous thing. I think what we're talking about is there's going to be various automation sets, right? Like if you want to update a database, the person that knows how to update the database should be involved, if not the person writing the automation scripts for the automation piece. Now, once you know what the change is and how to make the change, you can leverage a tool we commonly put into the CICD bucket and put your order of scripts in that tool and let that tool kick it off based on some trigger, right? So if you want to go fully automated, maybe based on how bright the sun is, whatever your input is, you can have that thing kick off the set of scripts or dominoes that will affect the change that you want to have happen, right? So if that's a very uh, repeatable thing, like I'm going to check in some code and you're going to compile it into some artifact, whether that's a binary or Docker container, great. Whoever knows what needs to happen in that flow will build the scripts and place them in the automation tool. And as long as nothing changes too much on the input and the output side, yeah, that's going to be pretty consistent. It's only when you start to have things change in the real world that you have to go revisit that pipeline and you should. Yeah, but in the end of the day, that you you say it doesn't matter if it's a bunch of scripts or it's some declar declarative thing, but in the end of the day, both in your scripts and in whatever is hidden behind this declarative thing that might be bugs. 
And we know how we deal with bugs in the in the software that we ship. We run it through quality gates on the pipelines. Should we have quality gates on the pipelines that releases pieces of our pipelines that our software will eventually go through? Yeah. And how much yes. time you have, right? Like you can write tests for the test for the test for the test for the test. And then you'll be just testing and not releasing anything, right? Like we should just, you know, like how far do you want to go down the rabbit's nest, right? So some people would say, you know, you don't test the standard library because there's already tests for it. So if I'm using, uh, let's say, JI Frogs CICD, I'm not going to try to write tests that your tool works, right? If I exit zero and your tool is supposed to take an exit zero to mean success, I don't want to test that again, right? Like I just want to make sure that, hey, my automation, my script, it does something. Um, it looks good. Maybe I'll put a few if statements there to do a little bit of error handling. But I'm not going to go and try to test the framework, too, because I'm hoping that your team has written those tests. And then when I find bugs in that, we may go and say, hey, I think the platform itself is broken because it can't, it's not actually doing what it's designed to do. That brings this up is, a whole other issue, it, too, um, depending on relying on separate teams and separate products to, to do that um, and to do that successfully and do that well so that you don't have to retest down the line. Because, yeah, you're right. You can go down a rabbit hole there. Um, what's interesting about that is just just the amount of questions that we have about CICD in general and how to do it and how to do it appropriately tells me that right now in this day and age, we aren't ready yet. We, we need to socialize this. And that's the goal here, right, is to help and, and teach teams how to do this successfully so that more and more do it successfully. And then we increase that trust and that confidence that everything is going to go well. Yes, but then what you're saying is, okay, we need to trust our dependencies and our CI/CD tool in this case is is our dependency. And uh, well, you say, uh, well, I just trust my JFrog, uh, um, JFrog as a provider, and obviously I'm not the one who is going to challenge that. But there is a, a there is a bigger question of trusting dependencies, and it goes into the whole. Um, uh, supply chain uh, attacks and um, class of attacks and 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 the whole um, idea of we are using more and more dependencies both in our code and in, the, in our pipeline as well and the dependency on the tool that does CI/CD is one of them obviously and we know uh, as a fact in 2020 that that we cannot trust our dependencies blindly. And um, the question is, how do we even start checking those dependencies or even first realizing that we have those dependencies? How many of us thinking about CI/CD provider as a critical dependency that the quality of our code is reliant upon? So how do we start realizing those dependencies and then deciding which of them should be trusted and which of them should not? Whatever makes you comfortable. That's the only answer here. Whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you feel comfortable. Are you going to trust the x86 instruction set for the Intel CPU that your software is running on? Are you going to look at the assembly code that's being generated by the binaries that your CI/CD system was built on? Are you going to look at the TCP stack when you update the kernel? Are you going to evaluate all of these things? Like, see, like, how far do you want to go? 
Do you want to test the power voltage that's being sent to the power supply on the, on the computer? Like at some point, you're already blindly trusting a lot of dependencies here. You, you're already doing it. So you, you can't really try to pretend like no matter what you do inside of your declarative CICD pipeline that you're actually getting any more confidence. It's just that you may not even know about those other things that you depend on. So I would say for most people, get to a point that makes you comfortable. And whenever that confidence starts to erode, meaning you wrote some tests, maybe you wrote tests for the test, and you're feeling pretty confident. Things seem to be working reliably as predicted. But then sometimes that starts to fail. Maybe it's failing 90% of the time. You're like, whoa, this is a little bit too brittle. Let me go revisit what's going on here. And a lot of times you either be fixing something or putting in a new check to say, hey, this part of the thing doesn't work as reliably. Let's not use that. And then some of your checks will be literally just don't use that part. Well, this is good when we're talking about non-ill intent errors and problems. We're talking about, okay, I, I found a bug in my dependency because in the end of the day, my code doesn't work correctly. And and this is fine. That's That happens. And that's the majority of the cases. I think the problems with our dependencies. And as you mentioned, they are we know how to tackle those. What I'm talking is uh, about is a malicious uh, intent uh, in uh, uh, actually supply chain attack uh, that is buried deep in your dependencies. And just feeling good about what you check and what you don't obviously is not good enough because uh, we can take example of Equifax. I'm sure they felt pretty great with their strats dependencies and how uh, reliably and how frequent they update them and they trusted I guess this dependency as maybe as a project of Apache Foundation this is why they felt good about it this is why they they took it look, it's an look, industry look, standard based on your tons logic, of other companies work on it and in the end of the day see what happens look based on your logic we should just turn all the computers off let's turn them all off like that to fix it turn it off let's go back to paper and pencil we'll be good now if you want to do more than that for a fact, you have to trust the things that you're running on. That's, that's, that's just how it works. Now, there's a difference between like trusting Intel to do their job, trusting your RAM manufacturer to do their job, trusting the Linux kernel to do its job. Like all of these layers have to do their job, right? Period. You, you, you're hoping that your CA, your certificate authority, is did, doing their job, right? Imagine if Let, Let's Encrypt lost their root certs. Mm -hmm. Right. All this. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to be like, hey, before we deploy, let's call Let's Encrypt team and guarantee and they have to assure me that, that that didn't happen every time we deploy. Like, see that now you're starting to just get into a world where even humanity doesn't work that way. We all trust each other to behave well around us. So I think when it comes to this, even the CICD system that you're talking about, there's a difference between making sure nothing bad ever happens and the ability to correct when something bad happens. And I think the goal we're after with these CICD tools, when we recognize that change needs to happen, whether it's a bug fix, security vulnerability, or the pipeline itself is broken, we want the ability to make the change and roll it out as fast as possible. That's all we're doing here. We're not preventing, we're building systems that allow us to mitigate and close the defect as fast as possible. Yes, but taking it on a meta level, what we are doing by starting to trust our dependencies less is actually mitigating the problem that already happened. I don't need um, a strats 
vulnerability to uh, to cause to steal my customers' data to realize that I'd better check my third-party dependencies. I can learn on mistakes of other people. And if it happened to Equifax, I can start worrying about checking my dependencies. So in this regard, not trusting the dependencies is exactly that um, learning that you are talking about. I think there's a little bit of, um, there is some responsibility that we need to know what we're bringing in and be aware of what we're bringing in. If there's some obvious uh, security vulnerability out there and we're just ignoring it or not paying any attention, I feel like that's on us. Um, there are tools out there. There are organizations that keep track of this stuff and list this stuff out. I think it is irresponsible today, given the number of problems that have been found and are out there in the wild. It's irresponsible today not to check your dependencies. Remember what I said, though. You're going to check what makes you feel comfortable. Yes. yes. Just because someone sent a CVE and said it was patched, you're now trusting that they actually checked it. And we know from Heartbleed that wasn't actually even true. There are some people that did yum update or app get update, and that wasn't even the fix. Is that irresponsible? Right? Because what happened is they delegated the responsibility to someone else, and they didn't go and check if they actually fixed it or not. They didn't look at any code. They just ran a command, app get update, still broken. And your customers was hoping that you would actually fix the problem and not delegate it down the line. And again, as an industry standard, all, a lot of these tools aren't even looking at code. They're just like, oh, CVE, this thing says that it patched the CVE. Did you actually look at the third-party library before you told me it was patched? Did you personally look at the code and test it? Or are you just passing down implicit trust? And most of the products on the market are just doing that. I know for a fact that most of those products are not looking at any source code. They're blindly trusting the provider to say that they actually patched it. So if we want to get into like the real life details. If we want to say that you want to go that deep, you actually need to look at the source code, look at the assembly it generates and make a decision. Is it fixed or not? Now, if you're not doing that, then you're having to put your trust somewhere. And I'm saying it's okay. If you believe that Red Hat is doing a good job, which they are, and patching CVEs and looking at that source code, then you're trusting Red Hat. And you're right, to your point, Melissa, you should be responsible and at least do that. If there's a patch available and you trust who's making that patch, you should apply those patches. But that's a little bit different than saying that you went all the way down and you actually understand what's in the patch. Oh, that's, that's exactly right. I think um, like an individual person trusting any other person to do anything is a leap of faith. Um, but if you don't do that, you will, you know, everything is going to grind to a halt. So in order to move forward, yes, there has to be some level of trust and some mitigation that you're responsible for. But yeah, you're right. It's impossible to go all the way down to the assembly code and then expect to be able to deliver anything on time ever. This is great. I think we, we kind of nailed here that it is a trade-off in the end of the day. And from one, on, on one side, there is like zero trust. And zero trust means, as you, Kelsey, said, 
we should turn off our computers because everything inside are abstractions of stuff that we don't understand and it is impossible for us to check. And on the other side of the spectrum is like, well, it looks like it works. Let's just ship it. What can possibly go wrong? And then it's on us to pick a point on this scale and say, okay, this is where we draw the line. Everything on one side of it is something that we trust. Everything on the other is something that we can reasonably check and just sail with it. Yeah, and I think this is where you know a lot of people in the security profession always talks about layers. And I think that's why it's important to talk about layers. So while your CI/CD tool can handle things at its layer, the source code and the developers who write code can handle things at their layer, there's also that concept of like zero trust networks. We can't necessarily assume that all the humans done their job in the chain. So even at the network level, we may try to just limit communication, right, at a fine grain level. And that gives us another mitigating layer that even if we get some of the things wrong in the areas that are producing the software, maybe we can head it off in this communication chain, right? Don't allow a bad library to export data out of your network by limiting the communication outbound from those machines, right? So this is why I think when we talk about this, we can't just solve this inside of the CI/CD layer. You're going to have to make sure you have these additional security layers in place because that's the thing that gets you to that level of being able to be comfortable and also mitigate things that you just can never know about. Yep, yep. That's that's kind of, this is where you cover your bases and say, okay, this trust library might be vulnerable if attacked through network. If I don't allow network communication to it, then this is how I get it protected. That makes sense. Um, getting back to something that you touched upon, Kelsey, and maybe we want to dive a little bit deeper. <clears throat> when we spoke about the pipeline or, and what it should do and what it shouldn't do and how it should be built, uh, you mentioned um, that, uh, and also it, it has uh, it has relevance to the trust issue as well, Um how much of the pipeline should be actually scripted explicitly uh, and imperatively and how much of the pipeline should be declarative, implicit, hidden behind abstractions and actually just um, marked up instead of say what it actually do. Yeah, I remember learning the functional programming language Haskell, and it talks about like purity, right? You have these pure functions. Uh, they take well-defined input and they return well-defined output. And until you get into working with the network, the actual outside world, they introduce this concept of monads. And for most people, they're impossible to understand. But when you're starting to deal with something that can act in a way that's not predictable, like the network could go down, it can be slow, there's timeout, there's latencies. When you introduce something like that, now you're into this imperative world, and it's really hard to uh, wrap this kind of functional or this purity of declarative around this imperative thing. So I like to separate the two. It is definitely an imperative thing. End of story. I don't think there's a lot of debate on it. These are imperative things. You don't know what the actual state is of the machine, because guess what? You have time to deal with. A lot of errors come from just time issues, like daylight savings time, time rolls back, time rolls forward. And sometimes that happens, that can actually blow up a lot of transa transactions that are in flight if your database isn't equipped to handle that kind of stuff or you're not using something like UTC. Now, given that we have all of these variables in the world that we have to deal with, you're going to have to create some kind of imperative flow. So on a whiteboard, I'm just going to speak about how I do pipelines 
I think it'd be great to hear Melissa's view on how she creates pipelines. But when I create a pipeline, the first thing I do is I try to get the manual process down perfectly, right? SSH to a machine, run a collection of commands and see, do I get the right results that I have? So there's not going to be a lot of error handling in that, but I at least want to know what the golden path is. Once I know what the golden path is, I like to throw that on a whiteboard and get people to poke holes. Like, what about this? What about that? This security thing, this security thing. And that gives me just areas of where to check that these things are all set up correctly. And that might be your quality gates. That might be things like pre-flight checks or post-flight checks. Either way, I now have enough imperative things that need to happen. Now, once I have these imperative things, some of these newer systems like Tekton, for example, they allow me to take those imperative flows or steps and create little Lego bricks like in the form of a container image. So inside of that container, when you launch it, it's going to run my imperative set of commands and to operate in the real world. Now, once I have them encapsulated in container images, it doesn't matter if some of those imperative steps are written in Bash, Python, Golang, it just doesn't matter. They're just imperative building blocks. That's the point where I can now step back and use a declarative workflow, kind of like you see in the Kubernetes community, where now I can just say, hey, I can use something like YAML or JSON to define a pipeline that says, run the first building block. If it passes, run the next building block. And if that passes, run the third building block. And oh yeah, each of these will have some artifact that needs to be passed through each other. That's really easy to describe when I've encapsulated the majority of the imperative bits that are hard to predict, right? So that w- that's where I would draw the line between the two. They're complementary, and we don't need to treat the whole system as a declarative thing. That was a really good description. And what you described about um, just manually going through the steps, that's exactly what I've done in the past. Um, the first time I was responsible for building a pipeline, it was very new to me. And I, honestly, I didn't know what I was doing. So I backed up and that's exactly what I did with the team. I said, okay, we're going to you know, write our plan. How do we manually get this software from this position to this other position? And it wasn't all on me. The whole team got together and we walked through those steps manually. And I think that's really important because what you're really trying to do is improve your process and get rid of you know, the manual errors and stuff. So um, bit by bit, we took pieces of it that we understood really well and we automated those pieces. So once again, we did not end up with a pipeline, you know, a single pipeline from beginning to end. But uh, there was a point when we improved our processes enough that it really didn't make sense to go any further. And that we were happy with that. Uh, yes, the um, and, and we learned this from trial and error, the uh, imperative pieces, you know, and if steps were to fail, what, what happens? Um, some of us went in not knowing what was going to happen. And uh, there were a few times when we were, you know, blocked by a failing build or a failing piece of automation. And that at that point, we went in and fixed it, figured that out and started putting those pieces in. And that made it pretty clean. Another very good advantage of having those blocks first mapped out, then codified, and then maybe replaced by some black box, either from third-party vendor or from your internal development, is that they become reusable. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I think being able to encapsulate the imperative nature gives us an ability to put inputs and outputs from them. Uh, and you kind of see this in some of the more, maybe some of the newer uh, automation tools, if not CICD tools that are out there, right? So now that I know that this thing will do some imperative stuff in the middle, I know if I give it these two inputs, like my source code, that it will build them using this build process. 
And then what comes out the other end may be a binary in a specific directory. And then having that reusability is, uh, I think, a way to get scale or enable these declarative workflows around it. Yes. So absolutely, we have a clear advantage here of declarative building blocks of CI, um, of CI CD pipeline, but there is a downside as well. And the downside is that when it works close enough to what you need in the other use case, but not quite what it will take to adapt it to what you need. Because if all you had is a bash script and you copy paste it to this other place, it was very easy to go ahead and check and, and change this one line that didn't do exactly what you need to do exactly what you need. But if you have a black box of a CI CD tool step, how easy it will be to adapt it to this other use case? I, I think that's kind of the beauty of it all though, right? So if one component needs to change, for example, I updated my Go version in my build container. So I didn't want to build with Go 1.12 or 1.13. Maybe I want to build with like Go 1.14 or something. So the modification that needs to happen there is I need to change the base layer and maybe everything else stays the same. But that's kind of the point, right? That I can just make a small modification and then seal it back up. Right, So that's always going to be there, but I think the important part is the ability to capture our change. Right, What we don't want is like a random growing if statement inside of bash scripts. What I would like to have is like, this is the old version of the you know, component, and this is the new version of the component, and they're distinctly different, and it also lets you get rid of some of the if statements. Right, I don't have to say, if you want a bill for 113, then I'll do this, but if you want a bill for 114, then I'll do this. So that, that gets really complex. So having two distinct compute units that I can use interchangeably, right? Because if you're a provider, you have to have this stuff available for like millions of people. So that means some people will need 113 and some people will need something optimized for 114. Yep, that, that makes sense. Um I still think about those use cases and and I can give you an example of um build tools. This is something that is a very uh, on, on long going about a decade debate in the Java community, for example, of Maven and Gradle, uh, both have both are declarative, but um, in Maven the encapsulation um, is kind of a, a steep in um, in in terms of what it takes to write to add a custom scripting block in your build pipeline. And uh, if you work with Maven, it necessarily means that you need to create a plugin, which is a, a whole new Java project with its own build, with its own pipeline, and only then you can use it inside your uh, your build. Uh, whether in Gradle, for example, you can just go ahead and add um, a, a, a imperative part, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, an imperative part in your build and just saying, okay, in this step, just do one, two, three, four, and it can be just simple actions that you want to add. And the, the debate is is raging on for, for a decade now, whether it's a good thing or not, when we obviously want 
a declarative pipeline. We want declarative build, and we don't want to get back into situation like um, um, shell scripts that is completely unmaintainable un un because of the ifs that you uh, mentioned. But from the other side, if you want your build to be easily customized, do you want to get people this to to give people this ability to just do something right there? Yeah, that's the nice thing is. I think for most people, it doesn't matter. If you use Gradle, great. Do what you got to do. Put it in a container so that people can use it inside of their overall build pipelines. If you use Maven, do what you got to do. Put it in a container so people can use it. And then maybe 10 years from now, there'll be another thing. And if you like that other thing, use that other thing. You don't necessarily have to fixate on there can only be one way to do a thing. What we're saying, or at least what I'm saying here is, Whatever way you choose, this is a way of documenting, encapsulating, and allowing it to be used repeatedly. That's a different thing than there should be only this one tool to do the thing that I'm trying to do. That's different. That's a whole different discussion. Yeah, I agree with that. I Just as a developer, I prefer the freedom to be able to choose what I want to do, what works for me, what works for my team, what works for my processes. Um, the moment I start getting, you know, wrapped in a box that I can't move from that that gets uncomfortable and I'll move on to something else. But I mean, this, this is all the same as even just even just developing a piece of software, I've got all of these choices, what libraries do I want to use? How do I want to make, you know, how do I want to create my classes? How do I want to create my methods? All of these things. This is all freedom. And this is all up to me to come up with something that works for my team and for um, our processes for our software and getting it out there. So uh, yeah, I think it's a black hole to try to build a building block that solves all issues and all use cases. I think that, you know, as well intended as one may be, there's just no way to know all of the use cases that are out there that people need. So building them small, keeping, the, keeping um, what it actually does small and containable, I think that's more important than trying to have one block that solves everything. That absolutely makes sense. And the smaller the pieces are, the more uh, they are um, versatile. You can use them in in different scenarios, but also that means that you can choose and replace them with others. But in the end of the day, smaller and smaller pieces bring us right back to uh, imperative uh, imperative uh, structure. Because uh, if we think about it, a shell command is the smallest piece of reusable code that you can rely on in your build script or your CI script. And then you say, you know what? You want small and interchangeable and configurable? Just write everything in bash. And that will be okay. And that's it. <laughs> and if it doesn't, so here's the thing. If that works for you, there is no problem. If it doesn't work for you, guess what? You can change it. Isn't that great? Yeah, and we are we are again back in exactly the same answer. It's a scale between imperative and declarative, and you need to put your finger on the place in the scale when you are comfortable. It's not too demanding to maintain because it was too imperative, but it's still reusable and interchangeable because it's not too declarative. How about that? Works for me.
works for me too. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So the next set of questions is is something that again relates to what we already spoke about, and this is um, how do we structure um, our code? and our process around to support the most efficient CICD. And I know what the answer will be, do whatever you feel comfortable, but still let's try and talk a little bit more de uh, details and maybe options and when we, which option is, is more appropriate to which scenario. And the, the, the things I uh, relate to is kind of, should we do monorepo or should we do repositories per, let's say, services and microservices? When we have that, should we make sure that the processes are unified in each and every one of them or every of the services can do something different? Um, should we work on the main branch or should we do feature branches? How all this affects CICD? I see the trick here is this. How do you want to notify your automation to take off? Right? Like, how do you want to notify? Let's say you go with the monorepo. So if you go with a monorepo and let's say you have five different services, you're using something like Istio for your network policies, maybe you even got some Terraform in there. Now, if I change the Terraform code, should I also rebuild and redeploy all the apps? You'll say, no, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I do that? I only want the Terraform to run again if that's the only thing that's changing at that particular point in time. So, all right, great. So you want a, you're going to have to have some tool that's smart enough to either do some regular expressions or watch a directory and say, hey, the only thing changed in this monorepo is the Terraform code and extract that and then map it to the Terraform pipeline, right? So the thing that's going to actually, you know, validate that this is valid Terraform code and apply it to some infrastructure you're just going to have to have a watcher that's smart enough to know what to do there. If you decide to go with multiple repos, whether I'm going to have a dedicated repo for Terraform, because some people do that for access control, meaning if you don't have access to the Terraform repo, you'll never be able to see it or make change there or maybe even issue a pull request to it. That's just going to be more of an organizational thing. Like As an organization, some people use different repos as a form of access control and it allows them to use slightly simpler tools because each repo can notify the pipeline itself that it should trigger something. Or if you go monorepo, there is some value there, but then you need to have a little bit more complex build tools that know how to shift through the various directory structures and then map the change to the various pipelines. But you know that front end piece can be interchanged, but you really got to look at the workflow that you're after. So... Kelsey, you're with Google, so I'm going to hold you as monorepo advocate, regardless of what you think it's a good idea or not. Uh, and what I heard now is why it's not a good idea, because you will need more complex uh, infrastructure to be able to distinguish whether it was just a change in your Terraform, and this is the only thing that you need to run, or it's actually some massive change across all the all the code and you need to rebuild your entire thing. So I understand why it makes my life harder. Uh, what are the advantages of Monorepo? Why I would want to use that to, to do this sacrifice? So in the Monorepo case, you got to remember at Google, we use protocol buffers, kind of like gRPC on the outside world. But we have a lot of schema definitions because we do a lot of code generation. So if I told you that no matter what language an app was written in, that everyone would have a schema 
and it will automatically generate client code. So this gets really nice. If I have one big repository, for some people, it's easier to find things because you only have to look in one place. That's like a real thing. Humans have a hard time, you know, looking all over the place for certain things. If I told you that all the schemas for all the APIs can be found with the search, like right here in one directory, right? It's a little easier to search across this monorepo than maybe 10,000 repos. You can solve it, just a different scale problem. And now that I have this, we have this kind of concept of lots of people just kind of develop from trunks. So everything's at the tip. If you check in a server component, we have a tool internally, I think it's called Blaze or Basil on the outside world. It does know how to do those things where saying, okay, this server has changed. I'm going to automatically generate all the client libraries automatically. Just from that schema, I can go and generate the C++, the Golang, the Python. I can generate them ahead of time. So at that point, we're generating and the top of the trunk is always up to date. Now, different teams may choose when to trigger a rollout. They may say, well, even though things have just got rebuilt, our, our build tools are really smart in terms of I know where all my dependencies are. You know, you have to do a lot of that front loaded to the developer. So the developer has to describe very explicitly when this changes, so should I. And now you have this kind of, you know, this tree or this graph of dependencies across the whole repo that if I make one change, I know all the places that can be affected by that change. So that's pretty cool. And that's one nice benefit you have. And then when it comes to company-wide refactoring, I can say our style has changed. And now I have all the code in a central place, meaning we can actually have virtual file systems on top of this stuff. And now I can go do a code base wide, all projects, all APIs, modification by regenerating some of that code and applying a change request to that. So we do get a lot of power, but we also invest in a pretty large team to keep what we call Google 3 up and running to allow all of this to actually be beneficial for us. That's not most companies. So this is why it's a big trade-off if you don't have that kind of tooling to manage the monorepo. Yeah. Remember, people, you are not Google. Well, maybe you are, but chances are you are not. Uh, yeah, this is this is cool. And I think there are a lot, a lot of um, good arguments for both sides. And there is a lot of information out there for... Uh, you know, b b pros and cons of monorepo. Mono there are a lot of talks by Googlers when they speak why it's good, especially with a Bazel that now is publicly available. So you can try and be a little bit like Google having monorepo and Bazel help you uh, do some of the things that, that Kelsey um, just, uh, just mentioned. And uh, you mentioned that you work um, out of trunk and that, that means that you're working in, main main branch um what what is your opinion of working on the production main branch um and uh, uh, versus uh, feature branches i think for us the fact that we have protocol buffers and the ability to version things at the protocol level um you, you need maybe a little bit less from versioning the branches themselves because you know we have so many things that are moving around all the time it's hard to have just like this set of versions will all play nice when they're all deployed. You almost need something a little bit more uh, tighter affinity at the application level. So beyond what the source code tree can provide. So having the ability to handle things like backwards compatibility, you need all of these things. This is why we chose things like protocol buffers, right? Where we have some style guys that say never delete a field. 
So if you want to change how the address is formatted, maybe you want to go from a single string to like four different fields. Well, you don't delete the single string. You add the additional field so that way you can support older clients making the old RPC calls. So that allows us to actually do this a lot better. If you try to do this where you don't have that type scheme, that type of schema and that rigidness at the protocol level, it becomes chaos. So that's why I think in open source projects where I spend a lot of my time, and especially when you have to deliver software that other people will install in their environments, then semantic versioning for some people becomes easier to do when you have feature branches, right? Or version branches like 1.0 gets a branch because we may have to give security updates for people who want to stay on 1.0 and never go to 1.0 or 2.0 if that's your deprecation policy. So you're almost forced in some ways. And once you start supporting multiple versions of software being deployed by different people at a different time, and you're going to promise to do security updates going forward, then you're going to always have multiple branches. Like it's really hard to do that without branching the code yourself and then backporting changes as necessary. That makes sense. Melissa, what is your experience with feature branches versus main branch? Boy, I'm, I'm just remembering all of my history on going back and forth and all of the different opinions that everyone has. <laughs> I just think the most important thing is to land on a decision together as a team and be consistent with it. Um, I personally prefer feature branches only just because it's easier to work with a few people on a feature. You can constantly check into that feature branch. You don't have to worry about um, breaking a build or blocking a build for other developers out there that are working on main. Um, having that communication among your team is so important. I just don't think there's any way around not having that communication. Um but we found, um, you know, just maintaining our feature branches, making sure they don't get too big, that they are a true discrete feature that gets merged into main and then goes through all of the testing and everything. Um, that was super valuable for us. And then maintaining the older versions, like Kelsey said, um, you know, we had a policy of how many versions backwards that we would continue to support. So being able to keep those on separate branches was super valuable, especially when, you know, you have a developer come in, they need to fix something or update something on an old branch. All they need to do is is um, go to that old branch. They don't have to, you know, pull the code and then try to get back to a, a point that is known. It's just easy to get to that branch and start from there. So I think we're we're... I mean, I love how this podcast goes because in the end of the day, we are in exactly the same answer every time. It is a trade-off. And there is a scale between, okay, we're doing everything in one branch, every build, uh, every commit can break the entire build of the entire uh, product. And on the other side, we have endless amount of branches that we open and then struggle with merges when close. And you need to pick where is your zone of comfortability and just do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, as far as, I, I mean, some actual solid advice, what do you think about how many branches to keep open? Um, I, I know I've gone into projects where there's, you know, I'm not kidding, 20 billion branches and they're all old and stale and you don't know where any of them are at. I, um, definitely that's probably not something that you'd want to do on your team. If you're going to have a branching strategy, actually have a branching strategy. It shouldn't be just a free-for-all. Yeah, I think the way I would sum it up is the tool shouldn't dictate your process. It should only capture it. 
that's really good. I like that. Yep. <laughs> Talking about trade-offs, let's get to the next one. And the next one is a trade-off of time uh, that you put into reviewing process. We're talking about branches, so that can be on a merge on a branch or maybe merge of a pull request. Um, we we all know uh, how reviewing a pull request is, is, is an important process and that we need to dedicate resources to do that. How much is, is enough? When we start talking about pull requests, it just, it's such a human problem. I've seen so many issues in teams and it really just comes down to personal issues with having code being reviewed, having code being changed, um, that kind of stuff. I, I think really a successful way to go is to have a good mentoring system so that maybe you don't end up in situations like that. Um, in my past development, I think the best experience I had was working in an XP environment, extreme programming, where it was important that we didn't have code ownership issues. So it, anyone was allowed to go in and make changes as necessary. Nobody actually owned the code. Any code that was written, you you wrote with a pair. So um, that, that seemed to push us forward pretty well. Um, these days, I, I've also been in situations where it was the exact opposite. Someone would, you know, go off and, and write a piece of code, put their all into it. And then the moment it goes into peer review, peer review um, for a pull request, it, it would get torn apart. And then that person would just lose confidence. So Kelsey, do you have um, advice or suggestions on how to deal with that type of mentality on the team? Yeah, I think um, I think open source is a good example. Um, you know, in open source world, we try to invite people from all over the world to contribute to our projects. They may or may not be sitting next to us. Uh, some of the biggest projects in the world uh, are operating in a way where everyone's working asynchronous. And I think there's definitely a, a confidence thing where you work on something and, and then people poke holes in it. But if, we're, if our aim is to actually build quality things, then you kind of need that feedback loop. Right. So, yeah, we don't want people attacking people, but we should definitely pick apart the code because once we merge it, it's going to be there for the rest of the project. You know what I mean? So I think there's a world where we we don't want the extreme where people just push code to the main branch and then we figure out figure out things later. We don't want that. So we know that we probably want some review step from someone who didn't write the code. So we know that's good. And now you start to ask about the workflow around that process. So that concept of a pull request is really nice because for some people, you can put whatever the cultural process that you want to have, meaning we won't even allow the merge button to be displayed unless the unit test run and a human adds a comment like, looks good to me. Right? Like we do a lot of that in Google. There's a lot of open source projects that do that. But that allows you to say, all right, this is our process. We've captured it in the tool. And another thing that I've experienced a lot when I was at Google was actual SLAs around a change request that's in flight. Uh, I went to go work on cloud functions inside of Google 3, and I remember submitting a change list, a CL, very equivalent to a, a pull request, and we have an owner's file. So in the owner's file, these are people by name who are going to be responsible for the SLA. Now, 
to Melissa's point, it's not like they own the code and only they can touch it. I was able to find the code I needed to work on without permission, but we do want some responsibility. We want someone to actually be responsible for making sure things move along. And that's what lands in that owner's file. And in that owner's file or maintainer's file, if you will, that those maintainers are raising their hand to say, we will make sure that there's enough bandwidth within the team to review pending change requests, because that's a lot of value that's sitting there. And until it's merged and in the hands of customers, we don't really get to realize that value. So having SLAs around that review process, because you've already agreed that it's a good thing to do. We just want to make sure that there's not a long feedback loop between someone submitting a change request and getting it reviewed to merge. And the last thing I'm going to leave here with is before you start writing any code, there's a lot of room for collaboration and discussion, like design docs, whiteboarding sessions, prototyping. Sometimes people don't go and do those things before writing the code. And that's what makes this whole branching thing last way longer than it should, right? Because no one wants to throw away a branch and treat it as a prototype. Like, no, 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 this thing is almost ready to merge. Let's just get it merged. Sometimes you want to do the other stuff first. So that way you shorten the delta between pull requests and getting it merged. That totally makes sense. And that's definitely an experience I've had too. The more discussion and agreement that you have up front with the entire team, the less you're going to go back and forth, even on subjective things in pull requests. Yeah, the Python community has a great process. I think they call it their PIP process, right? Where you go propose a design, especially for the much larger changes. And you can get feedback on that design. And sometimes in those designs, you'll also get the syntax that you want to introduce to the language. And that allows a lot of people to have some of those discussions that you commonly see on a pull request in a document. And that way, when you do go submit your pull request, you can link back to the doc and say, hey, we're implementing PEP 1055. We've already had the discussion. This is how it needs to look. Now let's just focus on the code and not the idea. That makes sense. Yeah, this is this is great. And I really like the what you mentioned that we acknowledge the fact that pull requests are good and the time we invest in reviewing them it's not time we waste not writing code it's actually time we invest in getting something which is done by other people that might have di- different, diverse opinion on what should be done. And we should welcome this change instead of saying, well, this is a waste of time. I don't have time to review that. Uh, it's different from what I would do. So it's probably not right. So this is why investing in reviewing pull requests is actually a good investment and not a waste of time. And this is how it should be looked upon. I just want to leave with one thing there that uh, you brought up and both Kelsey brought up. I'm pleased to hear, Kelsey, that um, on your teams in Google that it is important enough that um, there is a decision made to make sure that every, you know there is bandwidth available to actually review the pull requests. I've definitely been on teams that are rushed and under pressure, and the pull request is an afterthought. And throwing that little comment in there, you know, yep, looks good took, you know, five minutes when it should have been a little bit more in depth. And certainly bugs have come out of that kind of a process. Um, not, not making sure that it's important, um, that time is devoted to it is definitely um, something that you'd want to avoid. Um, it's almost as important as writing the code itself. Yep. Yep. This is, this is exactly the point. 
Um, another question, which again relates to stuff that we already discussed, but maybe a little bit of highlighting on those, is we, we when we speak about continuous integration and continuous delivery, we usually refer to building and deploying or delivering our code in one way or another. It may be the code which is actually software. It may be a code which is a hardware. Uh, Kelsey mentioned the Terraform files that had changed. This is software infrastructure as code. So we take code, we build it, and it manifests in some changes in the hardware, virtualized or, or otherwise. But in the end of the day, um, it is code. But what about the assets which are not code? What about the maybe graphics, maybe database schema changes? How do we go about all those? Because we always refer to code by default, but there is an entire world which is not code. Yeah, I love this one. I think I learned this um, really well when I was writing Ruby back in the day. So I'm just going to try to share some experiences because, uh, of course, it always depends. But... I think concretely, I remember like when Ruby on Rails came out, uh, a lot of people started to get exposed to like this idea of a database migration, right? So the framework, if you're using something like Active Record, you have this ability when you change your code to generate a migration script for the database. And a lot of people say, oh, this is amazing, right? So for smaller projects, you try to do both at the same time, right? Run your well database migration when it finishes you know, deploy the code, or maybe you do the code and then run the migration script. You're still playing with this kind of chicken and egg situation here. So for simple projects, you can kind of do it in that seamless pipeline. Do the database change and then roll the app. Now, once it gets more complex, for example, when I worked in finance, a schema change could actually take six hours, right? Like when you kick off the schema change, it's like, all right, the database has to make sure integrity is preserved. And it's going to go through and do all of these things that may take a long time. And the rollback from that may either not even be possible because you may lose some of the integrity or something bad could happen, whatever. In those cases, we always said, you know what? Let's make sure that we have two different workflows. One is for deploying code and one is for deploying database changes. And I know some people say, no, 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 Kelsey, they're always the same. They always need to be together. And then the thing I want you to think about here, at least from my personal experiences, when we rolled the database change, when we got really mature about our process, we wanted to do the database change and ensure that the existing application still worked. So we would deploy the database change, even though it was only for the new app. It still needed to support the old app just in case we had to roll back the new app code. So we had a different pipeline for the database change. The other thing we did with the database change, we may wait a day or two, you got to run some reports. You got to make sure you can actually run builds or whatever you're doing. And a lot of people don't test the reporting capabilities or the database change, just the, you know, on transaction stuff. And then we would have a different day after we let that bake for a while. We're not seeing any errors, no performance re regressions. Then we would deploy the new app in a canary model where they're living side by side. And we were really happy that we did the database change in isolation because now we can determine if the new and old app can actually play with the same schema. And if that's not the case, we could back out the new app and keep running until we can figure out a schema that works for both. This is exactly right. And this is uh, the procedure that was definitely most successful for teams that I've been on that involve database migrations. Keeping those migrations separated from the actual code 
was super important. And then just accepting the fact and realizing that a database migration may um, continue on through multiple code deploys, that too, because like you said, you need your database to be able to support a rollback. Um, it would be a sad state of affairs if you migrated an entire database and then you decided there's something wrong and you need to roll back. Well, how do you get your old database back other than just a backup? Um, that's fine if not a lot of time has passed, but I've certainly been in situations where the app has been running for two weeks and somebody realizes that something's wrong. Well, now you have two weeks of data to deal with and try to roll back. It just doesn't work very well with databases. Um, having that staged de de deployment, um, something that you said earlier with um, using, um, you know, like in, in code, when you decide you want to break up a field or something, you still need to keep that code backwards compatible and keep the original field and then add the broken up fields. I think the same thing applies to databases. You want to keep the old structure, like, a, for example, a, a column, you know, keep that old column and then add the new columns as you need them. At a later date, you could remove columns, but not until you have ensured that you are backward compatible and you've gone through those stages to make sure that the new app works the way it should. Now, I can hear the purists melting in place right now. Because they're like, hey, that sounds like two pipelines. For it does. And they just can't do it, right? They go into their CICD tool and they just see these two separate rows. And they're like but it should be one. And they tried their best to try to merge it into one big brittle pipeline. And you have to know that you're not going to have one pipeline. And sometimes you're not gonna have one pipeline for one app. And you're gonna have to be okay with that. A good example is I have customers that are moving from VMs to Kubernetes and they have two, like a branching pipeline for the same app. So they may keep the build the same. So that's one pipeline just to get the build and an artifact produced. But then they have a different pipeline for the last mile, like two of them, one for the VM target, one from the Kubernetes target. And then you have to ask yourself a question. Do you want if statements in your pipelines? Or do you want more explicit triggers in your pipelines where you start to connect these things like a pipe fitter would? So you have to resist this urge that there will be one golden perfect pipeline that can handle all scenarios. Absolutely. And when we're talking about modern and complex applications, there is uh, not almost, not always, but almost always, this fun out, fun in scenarios in which in some point of time, you need to kind of split away to multiple pipelines or parts of the pipeline. And in the end of the day, sometimes converge back to one or to a few and sometimes not. And uh, if statements are, in the end of the day, they are if decisions, right? We would, this is how we think about it. This is how we rational, uh, rationalize about it. We say, well, if we want to deploy VM, the VMs, we will go this route. If we want to deploy containers, we will go another route. So there is an if. Um, should it be like an if statement the code? Probably not. The decision should be done smart based on the metadata available and obviously declarative and automatic. But in the end of the day, the fun out and fun in are very important uh, functionality pieces of a modern CI/CD pipeline. And I think for a lot of people, if you're, if you're kind of listening here, taking the if statement out of the scripts and putting them into the actual you know, automation tool that you're using 
gives a visual aid on what that decision tree looks like without having to peer into the automation script. It's easier to change around without affecting the individual building blocks, right? You don't have to go and keep modifying those every time you want to do something new. And you get all of this other stuff like what part of it failed? When did it fail? You can retry just that one modular section versus running the whole thing again so you can hit the if statement again. So there's so much uh, modularity you get when you take the if statement out of the script and you put it inside of the actual tool. And then you rely on the metadata to actually express what the decisions should be um, uh, should make and how uh, how they should happen. Right? So you have um, you have metadata that describes the artifact in a certain way, and then the tool will make the right decision. So if this artifact is to be deployed as a virtual machine, the tool will know the if that it should do to actually deploy it correctly. So another question that we have here, and this is again backing, going back to what we already discussed about, is the GitOps hype. And I call it hype, and Kelsey, you might correct me here, because in the end of the day, from the beginning of continuous integration, 2020 years ago, it was actually GitOps. Git did not exist. It was um, CVS. It was SVN. But in the end of the day, the trigger of your build was a commit to your source control. And this is what GitOps in an essence is, isn't it? So I, I think you're right in the fundamentals. And I also talk about the fundamentals, right? Like using version control to drive operations is something that has probably always been possible. But here's where I think it's now practical. It's practical because now you have more infrastructure tools that can take declarative inputs, right? So before we were talking about checking in bash scripts, checking them out and running them on some machine. We didn't really have a lot of guarantees on what would happen because we had too much logic in the script itself. Now with Kubernetes coming on the scene, probably within the last five or six years or so, you now, and cloud providers before that also have pretty decent APIs. But in the case of Kubernetes explicitly, we try to put all of the imperative logic that we can in the various control loops, right? So the deployment control loop is the one most people are familiar with. And in order to make a deployment happen, I can create a small YAML file that just says, this is the container I would like to have run. And oh yeah, I need three of them. So at that point, the thing we're checking into version control is very easy to review, easy to read, pretty easy to test in any other cluster because all the logic lives in that controller. So now GitOps is actually practical because now we're really focused on reviewing the change, not how the change actually happens. That's why this is fundamentally different than what we could have done 20 years ago, because those tools, even with Puppet and Chef, you were always reviewing how the change would happen, not just what was being proposed. You would be reviewing like Ruby or a dialect of Ruby. Like, what, what is this logic here? Is this module even looking correctly? I don't know how it's going to actually behave when it runs. So you got into all this dry run business. So I think this is why GitOps is becoming this thing, because now what we had for software developers we now start to have the ability for operators of infrastructure because the tools now 
are much better contract boundaries around their inputs and outputs. Yeah, that's that's an important difference that is not not always not always clear and not always stands out. And I think today everything is you know let's let's do GitOps and everything, and and more often than not is just about well my CI is triggered by Git. I'm doing GitOps. Look at me. So this is nice, <laughs> um, but probably that's not what the inventors of the term actually meant. All right. Um, I think we covered most of the questions that we had or didn't um, didn't refer to the the webinar itself. Is it something that you want to talk about that we we didn't cover today, or or some questions that you remember and we didn't didn't get to or didn't pay proper attention to? Melissa, do you have something? Um, I did. Did we already talk about um, like microservices having a unified application deployment, that type of thing? I think we touched on it a bit. Yeah, we touched on it a bit, but it's an it's an interesting question, and and maybe maybe we can unwrap it a little bit more, like as a, as a, as a last question of today. Um, so here is another trade off. Um, obviously, deploying a monolithic application is a much easier process. You have one. Pipeline. It might be a number of pipelines, fun out, fun in, all the all the stuff that we mentioned. But in the end of the day, it's one application that is being deployed. On the other end of this trade-off is the myriad of microservices. Each do their own and do what they think right. Some of them might use a monorepo, other might use feature branches and different repos, and some of them might use. Uh, this CI tool or build tool and this CI service or a CD service. And in the end of the day, we deploy a myriad of microservices and then we just delegate the complexity into runtime communication instead of build, um, um, how do you say it, the build coordination. Um, Kelsey, what's, what's your take on this? Uh, I think when you write all the code you get to make more choices about how you deploy the code, right? So if I write three services and they all depend on each other, or you got some spaghetti thing going on, you're going to talk yourself into, well, I need to deploy these either in lockstep. You're going to try to coordinate the deploys because you're not really sure about your deprecation policy. You're not sure if things are ever going to be backwards compatible. So you always get nervous about deploying one service in isolation from the other. But the truth is, not all services we control. For example, DNS is a very popular service that people use. It's the name resolution service, right? It's right there in the name. We are familiar with our off service. We're familiar with like some other thing for managing users, but we don't think of DNS as a service, part of our microservice stack, or even if you're in monolith world, you always have this little service off to the side. The thing is, it's so reliable for most people. Like the standard DNS protocol is so well-defined for most people, and their libraries work so well that we don't think about the need to revisit our DNS deployment just because we changed the services that leverage DNS for lookups. And that's where we want to get with our microservices, right? If you're having microservices, we need some degree of confidence that either you're going to be backwards compatible to the point that I don't need to worry about your team releasing software independently. It's the fact that most companies don't have that degree of trust 
that they don't believe that that's going to actually happen. So they're very worried about deploying these things asynchronous from each other. And I'm going to say one more thing. Even in the case of the monolith, you got to remember when we're aggregating change, sometimes you're getting change from your standard library. Sometimes you're getting change from some other library, third party. And if you think about some of our build tools, they'll suck in things from various repositories. Like in the case of Ruby, for example, if you're using things like Ruby Gems, when you go and say, when you go and build that particular uh, artifact that you're going to have yourself, you're going to probably be pulling from multiple repositories because they have a packaging mechanism that allows you to assemble that on the fly at that step. And then you produce an artifact that doesn't need to have that step happen again, and you pass it on to different parts of the pipeline. So it's one of these things where in many ways, you're always aggregating change into some deployable unit. And then you have these network level dependencies, depending on how stable they are, you may try to reflect the ability to also deploy those in your pipeline. That that makes sense. And what what you made me thinking with the example of DNS is that actually, regardless of what we in the end of the day deploy, because of our dependency on other stuff that we spoke so much about, we already are in a state of services depending on other services anyway. So it doesn't really matter if you want to... Well, it does matter, but less. It matters less whether you want to break up your own application to a set of services because you are in the world, in the universe of interdependent services anyway. That's true. Something that you said too about um, you know having that layer around your service that makes it dependable, that solid API that makes it um, usable, reusable in different architectures, different systems, and still reliable. Um, going that way with our microservices, I think, I think there are situations where teams get into a position where they have these microservices that just, they depend on each other. And like you said, they, they feel like they need to deploy them in lockstep or in a certain order, or if one gets updated, the other one has to get updated. I feel like that is a symptom of a bigger problem. Like maybe the division isn't quite right. Maybe the API layer isn't as strong as it should be. I feel like once you get in a position where you cannot um, take the advantage of microservices, which is the point, being able to plug one in, take one out, if you get stuck and you're not able to do that with an individual service, I might take a step back and reevaluate the architecture. And many people have, right? Maybe you have a distributed monolith. Mm-hmm. Now the question is like, why did you do that? And sometimes there's still a good reason to distribute a monolith. Actually, sometimes you want to just scale up because of whatever the language you're written in. Who knows? But sometimes you want to scale one part of that monolith in the way that you don't want to do. I don't really like that argument. I've seen it happen. Okay, I'm okay with it. But when you realize that you've done that, you got to ask yourself: you can still write modular code, meaning you can have Team A work in their own repository and have team B work in their own repository. And then at build time, you suck in their services via libraries. And you still have a, if you want to call it microservices, you can, you can actually put it on your resume, but they're just libraries that then get hooked into the same web server at build time. So we got to make sure we're careful to decouple a deployable artifact and the logic that it contains, because you can actually stuff them all into a single artifact. 
Yep. This is exactly, you, you touched some point, which is very interesting because a lot of people, what, what, from what I heard, don't really realize what are, what is the definition of microservices? Um, when you have different repos written by different teams, built by different processes, but in the end of the day, they refer to each other statically in in the one application, it doesn't make it a microservice. Microservices are really it's a, it's a pattern that speaks about services being deployed separately, having their own lifecycle, application lifecycle, having their own versioning, and then interact through APIs that might be in completely different version or completely different state, but still compatible with each other. And this brings a lot of complexity that is taken out of the build time and, and statically linking time into, into runtime time. So it makes the build easier. I just consume your library as a dependency and, and it simplifies a lot, but, um, uh, sorry, but, but makes a bit, uh, Microservices make the build easier because I don't consume your library, so I don't care about all the build time dependencies, but instead it delegates to the runtime when all the complexity actually appears. Yeah, the choice is yours, which is beautiful, right? You may have a monolith that's well-structured, gives you the ability to do things like feature flags. I've seen it where people import a library that actually is backwards compatible, V1 and V2 in the same library, and based on the flag you set, that particular monolith will use a different version of the compiled binary. You can actually do that, right? And that's no different than some for some people than making a call over the wire, right? The, the fundamentals are roughly the same. I think there's another area where people end up using microservices. For example, at Google, we have a product called Dialogflow. So if you have a Google Home device, um, in order to integrate with the dialogue flow so you can actually do these speech commands, we have some SDKs that are written in like Node.js, probably has the best support. So maybe your team is writing everything in Java, but you want to build an extension of your platform so people can use their Google Assistant to communicate with your particular service. That might make sense to say, well, if Node.js is the best SDK for doing this, we may decide to create a dedicated service that communicates with Google's backend, and then we will talk to that through maybe something like HTTP to make things a little easier. So that kind of makes a lot of sense to say, well, we're having to depart on our language choice because this would be the better language because of the vendor support, not necessarily our preference. Yeah, and then we and then the question is, how can we? So HTTP is kind of the low the low denominator between all of them, right? In the end of the day, if you wanna if you need a microservice written in uh, Python to communicate with microservice written in uh, uh, JavaScript, in the end of the day, you will do it over HTTP because this is something that everybody understands. But it also means that this communication will uh, complicate the the runtime. And my question is, can we write pipelines? which will be um, good enough to verify these, those protocols that we will rely on on runtime in the build time. I think that goes back to my statement is that the, the, the pipeline tool can't dedicate, dictate the process, right? It can only capture it. So let's say 
I choose one extreme, which is to use protocol buffers across the board. I'm going to reduce the number of serialization errors I'm going to have, right? Because we're generating things from a common core. So I'm not going to go try to replicate that functionality. It's like the people that write unit tests for dynamic languages have to do a lot of type checking in their unit tests because they don't get that from the compiler. Now, when we go into thinking about this a little deeper, do you want this kind of intimate knowledge between service A and service B encoded in the pipeline? And I think this is where canary analysis tools tend to help a little bit. So when you say, let's just roll out 1% of the app to the infrastructure or roll out the app to take 1% of the traffic, you want to rely on signals coming from the actual environment to say, hey, we're seeing API failures when talking to the new version of the app. And that's enough for your CICD system to say, hey, uh, if you have a rollback component, I've gotten a signal from the Canary analysis workflow that this is not a good release let me go back to what it was before and I can notify you visually that this was the problem. And I think that's where we can actually unify some of these custom workflows necessary to um, trust but verify. Yep, yep. And and I guess the better our CICD tools are, the better they are in capturing the reality. And this is exactly what we um, talk about throughout all, all, this, all this podcast, right? So you make your decisions, you do your trade-offs. You select where you are comfortable on all those scales that we spoke about. And then this is your reality. And the difference between good CICD tool and a bad one is that good will be able to capture this reality in a flow which is declarative, easy to understand, easy to read, but in the end of the day does what your reality mandates and not forcing you to make compromises in the places that you don't have to just because your CI/CD tool is not good enough. Yeah, I see a lot of uh, room for development in the whole CI/CD tool space, of course. Um, we've seen that explosion of you know recently. Um, and I think the more people want uh, more of these building blocks to that reflect their reality, the more we're going to understand all of the different kinds of workflows that there are out there, all of the different kinds of things that need to be addressed. I mean, basically, we're just adding more Legos into our Lego bucket, right? And learning how to use those and put them together efficiently and uh, in a way that makes sense for us and our teams. I just see a lot of a lot of development happening there. Yep. Yep. So I think that's an important point. And, and we just, three of us actually came up with the ultimate requirement for any CICD tool. And that is capturing the reality based on the decisions and trade-offs that we met. And with this optimistic note, I would like to thank my amazing guests. Kelsey, thank you very much for coming to the Devon Speak Easy podcast. Melissa, thank you very much for coming. I think that was an amazing episode. We are going to publish it soon on the DevOps Speakeasy uh, platforms, wherever you listen to them. And stay tuned for the future episodes of the DevOps Speakeasy podcast. Thank you and bye-bye.